led us in uh, great worship and prayer, but I want us to continue in a spirit of prayer. In fact, I'd like to pray with you in a way that I often do in my own time with the Lord. Some of you may be aware that in the Old Testament days, God's people would gather together for corporate worship, and they would start in the outer courts, and they would stop in the outer courts, many of them would, and they would lift their hands to Yahweh. But it wasn't just an arbitrary lifting of the hands. They would take their hands and they would form a cup in front of their face. And they would just stop. And this cup in front of their face represented for some an empty cup. And they were just saying, God, I'm coming in empty. I just need you to fill me afresh so I can experience you in this sacrifice I'm about to make. For others of these Jewish worshipers, this cup represented a cup that was full of things that needed to be emptied. Sin, distractions and anxieties and just stuff that would cloud them from seeing God clearly. If you're comfortable doing that, I'd like to just have you close your eyes and maybe have you form a cup in front of your face and I'll be quiet for a moment. I want you just to interact with the Lord for your own life. And if you're today after a long week like you've had this week, just empty and you just need to be filled, tell him so. And if you're full of things that would keep him keep you from seeing him today, tell him that too, okay? Our Father, I'm very aware you see our hearts and our hands. And you know the condition we are in. (laughs) Thank you for the exchange life, for the reality of the exchange life. But just now, Lord, you see your people, your children, some of them holding cups in front of their faces that are empty, and they just say, Father, fill me afresh. Holy Spirit, come in an unusual way now and do just that. Others, Father, are holding up cups in front of their faces that are full of things that they they have gathered and accumulated along the week or month. We just release those to you right now. We cast our care upon you. And now we just say we want to hear from you, Lord. We want to experience the truth of God. Thank you for these people, Lord, who gathered from local churches all over the place just because we believe that you have something to say to us. We love you. We love you. We love you. And we just covenant together now. Where you lead us, we will follow. And what you feed us, we will swallow. In Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. 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 I, uh, last month, was in Washington, D.C., And I was in an airport, coming and going, and I had a deja vu experience. I was getting ready to get on the plane when out from the gate I was about ready to board came some soldiers from Iraq, some of our guys coming back home. And you may have had this experience too, but I mean everybody in that gate area just stood up and just started cheering, just saying thanks for what you did. And it was a very moving experience. I, I couldn't stay seated. I had to stand up too and clap for the folks. And they, just, and they were feeling kind of humble. They would look down. Some of them gathered their baby and kissed their wife. And, but it was just an extraordinary experience. And the deja vu experience for, for me was I remember thinking and, 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 and experiencing something like that about 14 years ago. Do you remember when we were in the middle of Operation Desert Storm, right around 1990-91, when our guys were just coming back from that war effort with Kuwait and Iraq. And I remember being on board a plane full of Marines. We were taxing, coming back into the airplane. I felt very safe, felt very safe. 
And uh, as we were getting ready to get off the plane, I grabbed one of the guys and I said, are you coming back from Kuwait and Iraq? And he said, I am. And I thanked him for what he had done, but I said, i got to ask you a question. I said, if there can be a highlight, what was the highlight of that whole effort over there? Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Desert Farewell. What was the highlight for you? And this young man, about 22, 23 years old, thought about it. And then he said this. He said, I think for me the highlight was just being a part of liberating an entire nation. I thought, man, this guy's thought about this. And then he went on. He said, I remember when we first got over there to Kuwait, and you remember these days, don't you? The Kuwaiti people were very apprehensive about us Americans being there. What do you really want over here? What are you really trying to do? Are you over here to occupy permanently and get our oil and this and that? And Are you going to do the same thing the Iraqis did to our women and children? But then over time, if you remember watching CNN and all, all the stuff we saw, over time they began to realize that we'd just come to set them free. And if you remember, by the end of the effort, I mean, they, they were giving us high fives and embracing our soldiers and giving gifts to us. And, and it was because they'd finally realized, some of them for the first time at the end of our effort there, that we had just come over just to set them free. I don't know about you, but for me, there's a picture in that. I first encountered Jesus when I was a teenager. I'd grown up in a Christian home but had run. When I was 16 years old, I began a personal growing relationship with him. But I distinctly remember I fought it for my early teen years, for the first four years of my teenage life, because I was very apprehensive about what God really wanted. Can you identify with that? What do you really want to do when you come? Are you trying to make me a missionary? Are you going to send me off to Rhodesia or something like that, you know? But, but I remember distinctly, and I bet you do too, the first time it honest to God hits you. No, no hidden agenda. I just want to set you free. My one agenda is I just want to set you free. Isn't that extraordinary? I know that's what this whole week's about or weekend's about, but I just want to reiterate the fact that when God comes in, he doesn't have this bait and switch thing where he, yeah, I love you, but <laughs> I'm going to put you to work. Now, you may respond in that way, but listen to me. Somewhere midpoint through Jesus' ministry, he turns around to a crowd of people, and the Lord himself says to these folks that he sees are desperate and in need, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will put you to work. (laughs) No, no, no. That's the American version of that verse. You remember what he said, don't you? Think with me. Say it out loud. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That was the deal. That's the word he used. And by the way, I'm not an Aramaic scholar, but I began to study that word rest, and it's a fascinating word. Did you know in the Aramaic language in which Matthew wrote that, 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 that book, the word rest literally means a permanent holiday. Oh, I'm sign me up. Do you realize Jesus was saying, as he looked at these people, sheep without a shepherd, distressed and downcast, he said, fellas, I just want to tell you something. You come to me, I'm going to give you a permanent holiday. Now, let's think deeper about this. For me, a holiday doesn't mean a cessation of activity. In fact, quite honestly, I'm more active on my vacations than I am on the work, on the job. Aren't you? I mean, at work, I'm sitting there in front of a computer or chatting with somebody in a meeting. On vacation, woo, baby. I'm skiing or climbing or swimming or roping. I don't, I'm doing something. I sweat more on my vacation than I do on my job. But there's a fundamental difference. On the job, I do it because I have to. On vacation, I do it because I, I want to. 
You get it. And so what he was saying is, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm not going to do a cessation of activity. This will not be be still all the time. In fact, some of you will sweat more than you've ever sweat. But now it's going to become an inward holiday. It's going to feel the equivalent of this wonderful vacation where you're active, maybe more active than ever, but it's going to feel like a holiday. And by the way, I want to sign up for that, don't you? That's what I'm here for. I'm going to suggest to you something that may not be a newsflash today. That God wants to do a revolutionary work in every one of our lives, but it has to begin with this fundamental truth that this isn't about signing up to work for Him, even though I may labor for Him, and you may labor for Him. It's first signing up for a pursuit that I want to describe today with a single principle. In fact, I'm going to do my best. I don't know if I can do a good job, but I'm going to do my best to to communicate in this particular session one single profound principle that has changed the way I approach my relationship with him, my my faith itself, my approach to to Christianity as a whole. Here's the principle I want to describe for you as it, as it played out in my life. And then we're going to look at a case study in, in the Bible where you're going to see it vividly in two people's lives. I noticed that when I first came to the Lord, when I first encountered Jesus as a teenager, after I realized he just wanted to set me free and I wasn't in this for work, I began a hot pursuit of communion with God. In other words, I just wanted to be, like Dennis just said, I wanted to be in intimacy with the Father. I wanted to love Him more, know Him more. I began this pursuit of communion with God. You understand what I'm saying? In fact, that's really all I had to offer. I didn't have my skills, didn't have many talents. All I got is communion with you, Lord, so I was in pursuit of communion with God. That's my one hand. What I noticed soon, though, was I had another hand in my Christian life. After a while, my pursuit of communion with God... Uh, well, the novelty and the newness wore off. Just like a honeymoon is over and the, wed- and the marriage begins, the novelty wore off, and I noticed that my pursuit of communion with God was eclipsed by the pursuit of competence for God. Over here, I was reading the Bible because I just wanted to love Him more. Now I want to read the Bible because I want to be good at reading the Bible. I want to know those Hebrew and Greek words. And I didn't notice the, the difference at first because both are exhilarating. It's, to be competent at something is kind of exhilarating, isn't it? Come on, when you get good at something, doesn't it feel good? I like myself. I'm good at this. So I didn't notice it. But what had happened was my pursuit of communion with God had been overshadowed now by the pursuit of competence for God. I want to be good at praying, good at reading my Bible, good at tithing, good at ministry, good at spiritual gifts, good at, good at all this stuff. And what I noticed was God in his graciousness eventually removed the fulfillment of my pursuit of competence, to gently nudge me back to the pursuit of communion. You follow me on that? Now, it's a very simple principle, but I have watched it play out over and over and over in cycles in my life. I've now walked with God since, my goodness, I guess it's been 20 years now. But my point is, I believe this this cycle of communion competence, these two hands in our Christian life, are constantly constantly juxtaposing themselves to gain dominance in our life. Now this morning, if you brought your Bibles, I want to look at a case study. I mentioned that already. In Luke chapter 10, we see a beautiful and vivid picture of these two pursuits displayed by two individuals. You've read this before. In fact, you've read it so many times, I'm, I'm, I'm almost sorry that I can't preach it better than I'm sure you've heard it preached before. But in Luke chapter 10, the last five verses, we meet up for the very first time with two women named Mary... And Martha, two wonderful Jewish ladies who both, I believe, loved God. Both wanted to do something great for the Lord. 
But we pick up the story. Now, by the way, you know Luke is the only gospel writer that actually claims that he's written the events of Jesus' life in chronological order. So as far as we can tell, this is the first time Jesus visits the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Pick up the scripture with verse 38, Luke chapter 10. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came along to a village. The village was called Bethany, where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted. Don't you love that verb? Was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and said, Lord. By the way, I have to read it that way. Lord. Don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken away from her. My guess is, some of you in this room, that's your favorite verse of scripture. Because of your own background, your own journey. Is that true? Now hang with me. Do you see vividly these, in these two women this pursuit of communion, pursuit of competence? Both of them love the Lord. Both of them are believers. Both of them are going to walk with God. Both of them are going to die. You're going to meet them in heaven. But Mary here is a beautiful picture of the pursuit of communion. She just wants to be at the Lord's feet and just soak Him in. She somehow understood that she first had to be served by Jesus before she ever served Jesus. There's a great American reality. Martha, on the other hand, just decided, I just got to get busy for him. By the way, you're usually hit with one of those two desires. The desire to get close to him, the desire to get busy for him. And some of you, particularly you doers in the room, want to just get busy for the Lord. This time I'm going to show you I love you. I'm going to get busy. And you're going to be impressed, Lord. By the way, don't you think, we don't know this, but don't you think Martha was really trying to just impress Jesus this night? I'm just doing so many things, you know. So... So Mary's this picture of pursuit of communion. Martha's the picture of this pursuit of competence. One, the desire to get close to him. One, the desire to get busy for him. Are either one of them evil? Mm-mm. I'm just suggesting that at the conclusion of the story, Jesus, the Lord himself, says, Martha, one thing is needed. If you'll get this pursuit of communion down, the competence will take care of itself. Now, you and I both nod in agreement to that. I don't think there's anybody in this room that disagree with that. But the, isn't, isn't that the toughest thing in the world? Because you see, when we shift over to the pursuit of competence, even though we never say this out loud, it's really about me. And I kind of like that. My ministry. In fact, we call it my ministry. You like my ministry? Have you, bought, have you bought the tape for my ministry? Come on. So, let's just step into the sandals of these two ladies for a moment. I want you to flesh this out in your own minds and hearts. Let's start with Martha. Martha always gets a bad rap, doesn't she? Doggone, I've never seen one good thing ever preached about Martha, bless her heart. But Martha, Martha, by the way, has just heard Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Did you know that? That's, that's what happens right before this little encounter. Some lawyer stood up, raised his hand and said, who is my neighbor? And said, Jesus, let me tell you a story about a Good Samaritan. He tells a story about a good neighbor, and I'm sure that Martha heard that and thought, I'm going to be a good neighbor. I'm going to be an illustration in his next sermon. I just know it. And so... She goes home, and she starts getting all the potatoes and baked beans together and all the food and everything. I think she's just trying to be a neighbor, don't you? I mean, after all, now listen, we happen to know from the, from the gospel accounts that Jesus had a fairly large crowd travel with him. In fact, he sent out 70, so he probably had at least 70 people in the living room. Ladies, would that not be a big crowd to serve that night? Okay, 
So here he is sitting around with, you know, 50, 60, 70 people. Mary's right there sitting, listening to his word. And Martha's trying to do all this dinner thing by herself. So she's going to the kitchen and she's getting the baked beans. And as she's crossing over, she's just looking into the living room. Anybody noticing me? Anybody noticing my ministry here? Anybody? No? Okay. All right. Okay. We'll get the potatoes. All right. Anybody looking in here? Anybody noticing? Nobody noticing. And I'm sure the more she goes back and forth, the more she's getting fed up. Because she's doing all this alone. Have you not felt this way before? You wouldn't want to admit it out loud, but you'd say, Ugh. And finally, she's, you know, the baked beans, the ham. she's getting the ham. and Well, maybe not the ham, they're Jewish. But anyway, she's getting, all, she's getting all the food from one side over to the other. And finally, Martha has had it up to here. And when she goes in to talk to the Lord, she's not praying, she's whining. She doesn't say, dear Lord, I love you, blah, blah, blah. She said, Lord, don't you care that my sister let me to do all this by myself? Now, I got to think, I just got to think that Martha was hoping for a different response than what she got. <laughs> Is that the, I'm the master of the obvious here, okay? She was, you know what I kind of half think she was hoping for? I think she was kind of hoping that after Jesus saw all that she had done was, would say something like this. Oh, Martha, you're awesome. Martha, everybody look what Martha's done in there. Everybody give her a hand. Mary, get your fan in there right now and help your sister. Now that's the kind of Jesus we could come to love. Don't you agree with me? Jesus sending people in to help us out in our ministry. Interestingly enough, even though Martha meant well with this, this had shifted. All of her doing that day was not a pursuit of communion. If it was a pursuit of communion, the symptoms would have shown up different. It would have been, Lord, this is the least I can do. After all you've done, I want to do this. I may not be perfect, but I just want to love you back. Isn't that true? Isn't that how you feel when, you, when you're in that tight communion with God? Instead, it was about her. This is my food, and nobody's helping me. And so instead of saying, oh, Martha, you're awesome. Mary, get in there and help her, and everybody look at, let's give her a trophy. Instead, it was Martha, Martha. Do you realize, honey, you're worried and upset and distracted by so many things. There's one thing, Martha, that's necessary. And, and you're missing it, honey. Look at your sister. Martha, look at your sister. That was hard. <laughs> Mary had chosen it. And my words today, these are just my words, was Mary was about the pursuit of communion. Martha was about pursuit of competence. And it's, it, listen, it can show up in ministry. It's, I'm not talking about you're doing bad things when you're in competence mode. She was doing ministry. But it was really about Martha, not Jesus. And it was really about her own doings and everybody looking and being impressed by her ministry and giving a gold star or whatever she was fishing for. Approval was going to be by, from what she did. Now listen very closely. I know what some of you have thought a million times. If you're like me, you've thought this before. Well, what if Martha just sat there like Mary? They just sitting around. Who would have cooked them at dinner that night? Have you thought that before? Can I just respond very gently? In two ways. Number one, did it ever dawn on you that just a few weeks before, Martha had just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with just a little basket, one lunch? I mean, I'm being facetious, but Martha could have got on there with a bowl of baked beans, put it on his lap and said, get with it, Jack. We need to see that one again. You know? <laughs> Let's just be honest. Now, I'm being silly with it, but listen to me. Here's something you really got to catch. I want you to log this in and put it away in the file. Mary's sitting that day was not, again, a cessation of activity. It, this wasn't, I plan to sit here the rest of my life and do nothing and just soak in the word. Listen to me. 
Do you know this same Mary eventually got up off her little bottom and she did something so extravagant it far outweighed the baked beans that Martha had served. This Mary grabbed an alabaster face one night. Remember this? Broke it open, poured it over the feet of Jesus in an extravagant act of worship, wiped his feet with her hair and her tears in this perfume, and Jesus' response was, this will never be forgotten. This will be a memorial forever. That's quite a different, different response than he gave to Martha. He, he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered. This will be remembered forever. Is it because he likes broken bottles more than baked beans? No. No, it was what was behind the two. This was a pursuit of competence. This was a pursuit of communion. And all that came out, and by the way, it doesn't even matter what comes out. It doesn't matter if you're in children's ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, single ministry. It doesn't even matter. The point is it's birthed out of this extravagant love and communion. And what happens to come out meets a need. Do you see what I'm saying? But Mary's was this wonderful response. And by the way, here's the real difference. The real difference is communion ends up in service. Competence ends up in performance. And there's a huge difference on the inside. Some of you have tried to perform for God and impress Him some way. Or, let me step back a little bit. Some of you may have grown up in a home that was very performance-driven. I don't know what mom or dad were like or your family growing up was like, but maybe you had to just do this dog and pony show to be okay. And your okayness was all about what you did and how you performed. Make the grade, make the team, make the money. Some of you grew up in a church like this. Your church, although they'd never say this in a doctrinal statement, was about working, 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 checklist, 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 checklist. And you turned into this Martha person because your okayness was all about what you did. And Jesus is saying, thank you for the nice try. You, I, you gave me the best your flesh can do, but I'm not impressed. By the way, Jesus is never impressed with our performance. You read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You never once see him impressed by someone's performance. He is impressed. He gets impressed by people's faith. Remember that? He gets impressed by their trust in him. It's all communion issues. It's all relational issues. The doing stuff, he says, listen, I put the gifts there. I'm not impressed. So the deal is, one is the pursuit of communion, gives birth to service, wonderful service. The other is this competence thing that gives birth to performance. Now, I think we're trying to get PowerPoint up over there. How are we doing, Linda? Is it still not yet? Okay. I want to give you a couple of columns to jot down. This may come up on the screen, but if it doesn't, I'll give it to you slow enough. If you want to jot it down, you can. I want to just um, elaborate just a little bit on this whole idea of, of communion and competence. And I want to give you some words to jot down underneath the column of communion and some words to jot down underneath the column of competence so you can see how they play out. Does that make sense? All right? Let's talk about um, competence first. Put competence on the left side, if you will, if, if, if you want to. This is all about grace. You don't have to, okay? <laughs> competence, again, is this drive to get busy for God. Number one, under competence, it thrives on rules and routines. It actually begins to thrive on this list of, of rules and routines and things, behaviors, things that you've got to do. We have this outward code that we kind of unwittingly use to measure if we're doing good under competence. Okay? Oh, good. This is just wonderful. All right? Uh, yeah. Okay, we're on to Fiddler on the Roof here. If you, are there any uh, things that come to scroll down, Linda, on that? If not, that's okay. I'll tell you what. I'll just keep teaching, and if you, wanna, if you can catch up to me, you can. All right? Wonderful. Um, number one under communion thrives on relationship. 
Again, that's not a newsflash, I understand. But do you see the difference? One thrives on the outward doing of rules and routines. The other one thrives on relationship. The doing is only a byproduct. Number two, under competence, it acts out of duty. It acts out of duty. There you go. Now, there's nothing wrong with duty. Sometimes I think the church needs more dutiful people in the but, but listen to me. I'm saying here, the only motivation is, all, all right, okay, I'll sign up. And ministries are full of people that have signed up because we've kind of manipulated them into signing up. We have a bunch of disgruntled people that are weary and tired and frustrated and resentful. Empty. Your church look like that sometimes? Communion acts out of devotion. That's why we break alabaster vases, not under competence, but under communion. When Mary broke that alabaster vase, it was not a vase-breaking party that night. It was not, you know, everybody's doing this, so I'll I'll just join in. This is the list of ministries, children's ministry, alabaster vase-breaking. That was not it. It was the thing that just struck Mary. I've got to do this. I just have to show him how much I love him back. I I don't want to overdo this today, but it's like a really good marriage. Where you do stuff that you never said in the vows, but you do because you love the person. Doesn't that sound like a good marriage to you? (laughs) I'll just keep moving. (laughs) I'm just going to keep moving. All right. Number three, number three under competence, the motivation is usually guilt. Not always, but usually. Have you not ever felt like you just had to, I I feel guilty if I don't do it. This is not what God wants from us. That's why he said in Corinthians, he said, I want a cheerful gift. Don't give the money if it's out of guilt. And so, do you remember that? He's saying, I want your motivation to be the right motivation. The byproduct will take care of itself. I will wrap this thing up. I have enough believers in this planet to wrap this thing up. I want you to love me. Number three, number, oh, I'm sorry, these are all coming down under competence. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and just go down the competence one, then we'll contrast the other ones. Number four is human obligation. Again, you feel obligated. Number five, it, there's a comparison to others, and that's because you're living purely on the horizontal. You start saying things, well, I think I do better than she does in that minute. I'm not as good as he is, but I'm better than she is. And you have this competition thing going on, this comparison thing, where ministries are compared, and you start feeling like if one wins, the other has to lose. There's a scarcity paradigm rather than an abundance paradigm going on in your head. Number six, the last one, this is probably the most, this is the key one. The result is a tired performance to gain someone's approval. Whether it's God's or your dad's or your boss's or your spouse or, or whatever. And, and listen, I'm not trying to project too much. You may say, Tim, that's great information, doesn't apply to me at all. But I'm guessing many of you in this room, you have lived under that pursuit right there. Outwardly, you look fine. You said, praise the Lord. You shook the pastor's hand. You went home and had chicken every Sunday. But that was what was going on inside. Now, let's contrast it with communion. Number one at a communion thrives on relationship as opposed to routines and rules. Number two, acts out of devotion, not duty. Number three, the motivation is usually gratitude. It's not guilt. Mary did that alabaster thing out of pure gratefulness from the life she was redeemed from. Five, instead of, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, number four, instead of um, human obligation, it's divine grace. And you guys understand grace. You're part of this association. You understand grace. Grace is not just unmerited favor. 
It is unmerited favor, unlimited power, and unconditional love. It is all those wrapped into one. So it's the enabling to do whatever you have to do. And when you get into the communion thing, you're actually capable of doing more than your flesh can do. I don't think Mary, when she signed up, said, one day I'm going to break an alabaster vase. I don't think that's what it... That just, it just happened in response. Five, instead of a comparison to others, there's the acceptance of others. And I know that sounds like fifth grade Sunday school, but listen to me. You're totally liberated to fully accept and love people and their gifts. By the way, the scripture says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I tell you what, we do the weeping okay. We don't rejoice when others rejoice. We start thinking, how come you got ahead? How come you got that ministry? How come you got that? You got that you know, and we're, we're in this comparison thing. It's because we're caught in the competence trap. Christianity is about competence in our lives, so we're excellent and we perform top notch. And I understand this. Listen to me. I have pastored in two churches for 15 years. I understand this natural American migration to competence in everything we do, including our faith. Number six, the last one. Instead of the result of a tired performance, the result is empowered service as a response to the love of God. Which I think is what we all said, I want to sign up for that. This is the life I wanted. But is it not hard? Now, while you're finishing jotting your notes, can I just talk heart to heart with you? <laughs> Which is not to imply the rest of it hadn't come from my heart, Okay. Have you ever stopped to think, and I'm sure you've had these thoughts before, maybe just didn't put it in these words, but haven't you had these thoughts before? How come I finally get into the, I get stuck in this checklist rather than this, this love thing? I think the reason is, at least for me, it's easier to follow rules than it is to follow Jesus. Because rules are predictable, controllable, and eventually I get done, wipe my brow and get on to ESPN or whatever it is I'm going to do. Rather than say, this is a dynamic, relational thing. This wild adventure with Jesus, who knows what might happen tomorrow. And I'm not in control. True? Control is a myth in the Christian life. If you're in control, you're not, a, you're not living a Christian life. Okay? Should we give an altar call right now? <laughs> now, I find that very much of the time, we get stuck in this mode and, and, and it's, it's because we want this controllable checklist. We want this outward behavior thing where everything's pretty much, well, we can measure it from the outside. I pastored in a holiness church for 11 years. In fact, both churches were, were that background. You know what I mean when I say that? In other words, um, the, the tradition theologically was we live holy lives unto God, which is a great, noble, and biblical pursuit. But all holiness movements eventually tend to measure it from the outside rather than the inside. I had a friend in our denomination. I've got to tell you this. I'll be quick, but you'll love this. His name was Bob. Bob and I were college students at the same college. Bob told me that he started going to a college group at the church when he was a student. And um, he went there because he heard there were cute girls at, the, at this college group. And he's just being honest. Well, he looked across the college Bible study one, one night and saw this really pretty girl and thought, I'm going to ask her out. So he went over and he said, uh, hey, you know, my name's Bob. What's your name? She found out her name. And he said, would you like to go out? She said, sure. He said, well, how about next Friday night? We'll meet you, meet you at, you know, 7 o'clock and go out. Great. Bob picked her up. True story. Picked her up. They both got in the car and they had that very typical first date conversation. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. They go back and forth. <laughs> and finally, Bob decided, well, as the male, I'll lead here. And he said, uh, I'll tell you what, let's, um, it's Friday night. Let's go to the high school football game here in town. <gasps> no. 
She turned white as a ghost. We can't go to the football game. They're cheerleaders, short dresses. We can't go there. That's bad. That's wrong. It's evil. And well, Bob said, "Oh, oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize." That was, that was sensitive for you. I, I will go on to something else. He said, I'll tell you what. Let's just go see a movie. <gasps> no. No. Movies. Terrible cuss words. You know. And she had reasons. But no. Okay. He said, I'm really sorry. I, I'm really sorry. He said, I'll tell you what. Let's go bowling. <gasps> no. Not bowling. They serve beer there. That's terrible. Well, Bob told me when he was telling me the story. He said, I went through several more items. And we could not do any of them. And finally, I, said, I finally said, Bob, what did you do? He said, we went, to, we went to the convenience store, got a Diet Coke. That's what we did. And I said, well, okay. We had a good talk. He said, but we actually like each other. So he said, let's go out again. He said, we went out the next four weeks, night after night, night after Coca, Diet Coke. That's what they had for four days. That's all they could do. Until finally, date number five, Bob got in the car with her. She sat down and Bob said, tonight, I want you to choose. I mean, we can get a Diet Coke again if you want to, but I want you to choose. Because you obviously have a sensitive conscience, and I just want to make sure that we do something aligned with what you can do. And she said to him, I thought you'd never ask. He was kind of taken back, and he said, whoa, 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 what do you want to do? Honest to God, this is what she said. Let's go parking. <laughs> Bob thought, Bob thought, surely she means something different than what I understand. Park and pray, park and praise, maybe. I don't think it's what I think she means by parking. And so Bob goes, well, why don't you guide us to this place? We're going to do this thing you call parking. I'll steer and you guide. Well, Bob's driving. He's getting white knuckles as she directs him out to the deepest, darkest part of the woods. I mean, they're in the forest out there. And as they turn one of the last bends, they get out to this clearing out there. There are tons of cars out there. It's the college group from the church all out there making out in the, in the woods. And Bob stops right there and says, you've got to explain this to me. And they had, Bob said, Tim, we had a very wonderful conversation. I mean, it was humorous up to this point. We got very serious. And listen to what Bob discovered that night when he said, why can you do this? And you, here's what he found out. That church that that girl attended had a pastor that just dangled them over hell every Sunday over the issues of football games, movies, bowling. I guess he hadn't gotten to parking yet in the series or something. I don't know. (laughs) I, I don't know. But listen to me. For them, they had reduced this thing down to outward stuff that they judged, no fingernail polish, don't go this place. But inside their hearts, they were still dark. They were just doing what they hadn't yet gotten to in the teaching. And I'm suggesting, while that may be a laughable thing, we have, to a degree, that going on in our lives. We've kind of nailed it. What can, I, what can I still do in darkness? And God's saying, listen, I want something so beyond what you can do. That's why I can't afford you to live in confidence. If you live in confidence, it'll be about you and about what you can pull off, and you'll start looking for nooks and crannies and loopholes in this Christian journey. Now, I want to boil it down to one great metaphor for you, and then I'm going to close with three um, word pictures. I mentioned earlier that I feel like this thing really is, is, is a lot like a marriage. I really believe that this truth I'm trying to, to, to communicate to you can be summarized if we just picture a really good marriage. 
and maybe conversely picture marriages that haven't been so good. It generally boils down to this communion confidence principle, and we can apply it to the Lord. You saw a slide that came up prematurely just a minute ago, Fiddler on the Roof. Linda, go ahead and scroll to that. Do you know this movie, this play? Have any of you seen this play or seen the movie at some point? Okay, it's a classic story. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you, okay? The movie came out in the 1970s. The play's been on Broadway forever, I think, since Leviticus, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but it's this wonderful, lilting story about this Jewish family. Do you remember? And Tevia. Tevia is the Jewish dad, this big, burly Jewish dad, whose whole goal in this plot is to marry off his daughters to find Jewish boys. That's the goal. And with the help of the matchmaker, he, um, he does the tradition. Remember his song? Tradition, tradition. And he finds these Jewish boys that are right matches for his daughters based on their income and their financial status and la, 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 la. Well, one by one, these daughters of his start falling in love with the wrong boy. And he gets so frustrated because they want to marry out of love, not out of, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, arrangement, whatever. And do you remember the story? One by one, they start talking him into marrying the wrong boy. But somewhere along the course of the story, Tevye, this Jewish dad, starts questioning his own marriage. And in one powerful scene, it's a very quiet but powerful scene, he walks into his own home to talk to his own wife. She's probably down scrubbing the floors or something. When he walks into the room and he asks her a question, it's a musical, so he sings the question to her. He just says, Do you love me? She has no idea how to respond. They're married. She has no idea how to respond. She turns around and says, what kind of a question is that? He says, just answer. Do you love me? And because she can't think of what to say, she can't even muster the words, yes, I do. She just says back, for 25 years I've cooked your meals, darned your socks, washed your clothes. And he says, yes, but do you love me? You see, it was all about confidence. You see what this was really about? He was saying, do we have communion? And all she could sing back was, I've got competence. <laughs> That's true. And sometimes I wonder, and I'm not trying to overdo this or overspeak here, but sometimes I wonder if God sings from heaven to us, do you love me? And all we can say back is, for 25 years I've gone to church, prayed my prayers, read your word. And he says, yes, but do you love me? We've boiled it down to a list because we want to be competent. And it's really kind of fun when it's about us and our own competence at the Christian life. Now, I want to close. I just have a few minutes. I want to close with three quick word pictures. This is very simple. But this morning, just to leave you with no news flash, but just one principle and three word pictures, I want to give you three metaphors that all come from the New Testament. And these New Testament pictures are all pictures of this communion competence principle that if you'll just lock these into your mind, I think you'll stay aligned with, with the life that God really intends for us, okay? Word picture number one. It's real simple. The first word picture I want to give you comes from the Gospels itself and is the picture of the father and the son. Or, ladies, the father and the daughter. It's the father-child relationship. By the way, you know this already, but the number one metaphor used to describe God in the Gospels was not master of the universe, creator of all things, even though he was. Do you know what it was? Father. 
It's almost like Jesus was saying, fellas, I wish there was a good word to use to describe God to you, but the best metaphor I can give you is like a really good dad. Just picture a really good dad, and that's, that's how God is. And you, disciples, you're like sons to him. And he wants to relate first to you as a son and a father, not as a worker or an employee. Now, one day you'll probably work for your father. But, but the relationship is first father-son. We do holidays together. I was in New York um, speaking uh, a number of months ago. And I remember I was up on the platform waiting for my turn to go on. We were in the middle of a worship experience. When I looked out in the audience and I saw about halfway back in the pews, there was a dad and his... I don't know, maybe 10 or 11-year-old son seated next to each other. Dad had his arm around him. And I noticed that Dad probably had his arm around him because the little boy was very fidgety. You know, just squirming and fidgeting and squeaking and, you know, just making noises, little spit wads every now and then. And the dad would just, would just hug him closer. He didn't discipline the boy. And after all, it's about my time to go up and speak. I wanted this place to be quiet, you know. And I'm thinking, why doesn't he discipline the boy? Well, he just kind of hugged him closer, didn't do a thing. This went on for 10, 15 minutes. And finally, after a season of time, this dad stands up. We're all, at that moment, sitting down. He picks up his 10 or 11-year-old little boy like he's a baby, just cradles him in his arms and walks out of the worship center. Well, call me morbid and sadistic, but I wanted to go and see what was going to happen. And I knew I had a little, just a little bit of time, so I kind of slipped around the side of the sanctuary. <laughs> Life is entertaining. But you know what? You're laughing at me. I'm so glad I did. This may have been a leading of the Lord. Because when I got out to the foyer of that church, I stood off to the side next to an usher with a bunch of bulletins, and I watched that dad seated out in that foyer, just holding his son in his arms, stroking his hair very, very gently, and just saying things like, Son... Do you know how much I love you? I really, really love you. I just love you, love you, love you. And that little boy, 10 or 11 years old, was okay. He was very quiet. I turned to the usher and I said, what's going on over there? And he just said to me, oh, that happens about every other week around here. I said, well, what is it? He said, well... He said, you see, that boy is an epileptic. And from time to time, we'll have mild seizures. Sometimes he'll get very squirmy and fidgety. But he said, you know what we've noticed around here? That dad always knows just what to do to make it okay. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I get fidgety and I distract people from God. Do you ever distract people from God? The very thing you're not wanting to do. You know what God does? He gives me his grace. The second image that I want to give you is the bride and the groom. You know, Paul brought this up twice in the New Testament, that he is the wonderful groom coming for his bride. You know this picture in Ephesians 5. And we're the bride of Christ. Now, guys, this may be hard for you to imagine, but we're this spouse. And we will have another picture now, another picture, not father, son, this loving relationship. Now, hang with me. I've already hinted at this, but I want to say it loud and clear right now. A really good bride and groom relationship, a really good husband-wife relationship, is powerful metaphor because it gets us to do more than the law could ever get us to do. You see, in 1981, I got married to my wife, Pam. She's a wonderful bride. 
We're still married to this day, and we, are, we were holding hands back in 1981, and we were saying love things. By the way, we were saying love things. True? To love and to cherish, till death, there for sickness and hell. We'll love you, we love you, love you. We didn't say, I promise to take out the garbage, to mow the lawn. To, to. That's how we treat God. We said love things. And watch it. Those love vows that I made that day caused me to do more than I ever said in the vow. For instance, my wife loves ice cream. I go out almost every night to either Brewster's, you familiar with Brewster's, or, or uh, Cold Stone, or someplace like that, and we get ice cream. I'm second on the list, but I think ice cream is maybe, is maybe the first on her list of loves. Now listen to me. I'm diabetic. I can't have ice cream, but I love getting my wife ice cream. Now, I didn't say in 1981 at the wedding vows, I'll promise to get you ice cream every night at 9 o'clock. Amen. But I do, because love gets me to do more than the law can get me to do. Now, this is not a newsflash, but folks, the reason God can't afford to let us get into competence is we'll reduce it down to the minimum. Or, if it's not the minimum, we'll take pride, like the Pharisees did, in adding things to the list. We're a bunch of Pharisees, true? I've got to tell you, I know we're almost out of time, but I've got to tell you this. Great picture of what I'm trying to explain here. I was at a pastor's conference when I was a pastor back in the early 90s. And there was a very well-known Christian author speaking to us. I'm not going to give you his name, and you'll know why in a moment. He was speaking up on the platform, and he began to get very vulnerable and transparent about his own journey. And he told us that just a few months prior to that time, he had planned on committing adultery against his wife. He was traveling all the time, and she was on the East Coast. He happened to be speaking on the West Coast. Nobody knew he was there. I mean, nobody, nobody suspected anything. He had this friend out there, then they were going to meet up one night in a hotel room and have this wonderful night together, and nobody would know. We were on the edge of our seats at the conference, thinking, what is he saying here? Listen to why he told us the story. He said, I had a plan. My plan was I would check into the hotel under a fictitious name, pay it in cash, go up to the room, lock the doors, and then sit down in the bed and call her up on the phone. When it was safe and everything was, was together, she would come up and, and, and no one would know. Well, he said the plan worked perfectly. He got up to the hotel room, locked the doors, sat down in the bed, picked up the phone, and when he started to dial this woman up, that he was going to have an affair with that night. He said God just flooded him with a tangible sense of his presence. But it wasn't what you'd think. God was saying things, not audibly, but very tangibly, things like, Keith, I just want you to know, I absolutely love you. I adore you. In fact, regardless of what you do tonight, I just want you to know my love meter will not change one iota. I love you. I absolutely love you. I love you. I love you. He told us that night, he slammed the phone down. He said it was hard to sin when God was doing that sort of thing to him. He tried to get back in the flesh, you know, and pick up the phone again. And he dials up her number the second time. He said this time it came stronger. The presence of God, only this time, God shared passages from the Scripture. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we would be called the children of God. And who can separate us from this love of God in Christ Jesus? Can height or depth or principalities or powers or things present or things to come? No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever would just believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He told us he slammed the phone down a second time. When he picked up for the third try, 
He started dialing her number a third time, and God this time just flooded him even stronger with grace and love. And this third time, he slammed down the phone a final time. And with tears in his eyes, he looked up to the heavens and said, God, it's no use. I can't do it. I'm hopelessly in love with you. And he never sinned that night. Now, I don't know how you unpack a story like that, but for me, that is cool, but it doesn't make sense. If I had been God, I would not have dealt with him that way. Okay? I would have said something logical. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I repeat, thou shalt not commit adultery. There you go. There you go. Do you know something? Listen to me. That would have been right. The law is always right. It just gives us no power to keep it. What he needed was something not natural, but supernatural. He needed a relationship that would empower him to live at a higher level than he could have pulled off on his own. On his own, he would have sinned, just like you and I. The cool thing is, God says you've got to do the communion thing. It's your only hope to make it. It's not just because I want your love. You, you, I do want your love. But you need my love. You've got to have it. One more picture. The last picture that we find in the New Testament, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is the ambassador. The ambassador. Now, I know you know this one, but let me just unpack it with you. Do you realize that another picture he gave to describe your relationship with him is like an ambassador who represents a foreign land? Or rather, you're in a foreign land and you're representing the homeland. And we've been placed on this big blue marble in space, you know this, as ambassadors. Now, I've seen some ambassadors. I've actually got to meet some. Do you know they're often, it's quite amazing, little people. With nice suits. Little people with nice suits. And I remember thinking, you know, this guy that's going over, I met him back in the 80s when the Soviet Union was still at, this guy's going to the Soviet Union, they take him seriously, this little guy? You know why they do? Because behind his little words that are barely baritone is the entire United States government. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? We have no hope except that we are ambassadors And when we speak words and we do things, behind us is the government of heaven, which is our only hope for actually thinking we can live this life out and represent the authority of God. I'll give you an illustration even closer to home. Let's say we were to all leave this place tonight to go out to dinner, and we were to get on, I don't know, 400 North or I-85. And uh, No, no, let's say say it was just an intersection right outside the hotel. And let's say the traffic signal went down. You know what we do when traffic signals go down? A police officer comes out and manually... Holds up the traffic and brings the rest through. Can I ask you a question? Can that 180-pound police officer, with his outstretched arm, hold up 17 tons of traffic? Does he really have the power to do that? No. But he's got the authority to do that. Because behind that outstretched arm is the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia. Shoot, George Bush will bring in the National Guard if he has. You keep running that guy over. He'll bring in the National Guard and get you. Now listen to me. I'm just saying... The only reason I can walk out of this room with confidence that I'm going to live this life and influence the world that I'm in is because I'm representing something far greater than just my scrawny body and my scrawny thoughts, which is why I've got to have communion. Martha, Martha, you're distracted by so many things. One thing is necessary. Let me summarize it this way. In my Christian life, It started in a wonderful pursuit of communion with God. Eventually, over time, that pursuit of communion was eclipsed by a pursuit of competence for God. 
And God in his wonder and graciousness eventually removed the fulfillment of that pursuit of competence to nudge me back to the pursuit of communion. Let's pray together. Father, we love you today. And it's just rich to take a fresh look at maybe an old truth. I thank you that when we uh, embrace this, it affects every relationship in our life, not just our one with you. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, right now that you give a very specific and personal application to everyone in this room. I pray, Lord, you show us if there are performance issues that we're wrestling with right now. If our lives or our ministries are motivated by something less than just loving you. Help us, Lord, um, when we get caught up in our little dog and pony shows to know that this really is not about us. I'd like you right now in the final 60 seconds we have before we take a break to do something a little different, but um, I think it'll be okay. I want you just to reach over to the person next to you and put your hand on their shoulder or maybe their knee and I want you to pray for each other right now that they would experience the hot pursuit of communion with God. And then I want you to be prayed for kind of simultaneously. Just pray for each other to the right and to the left. Let me just be quiet for a moment and allow you to do that right now. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your work in our lives. Just refresh us throughout the day as we worship tonight with Dennis. We just love you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, who is our Redeemer, Master, Champion, Hero. And God's people said, Amen.